You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Matthew, Hefei, Zuman, Jennings, Long John Sterling, Bull, Yeltik, Vertigon, Contif Allende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. If you'd like to help support the show, you can always go to patreon.com forward slash pirate history podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash pirate history podcast. And a special shout out this week to our newest Patreon supporters. That's Ash, Ryan, Lane, Amy, and J.L. Ramink. I couldn't do the show without you. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We can never know what happened to most of the ships in Henry Morgan's fleet after Panama. Some were bound for Port Royal, others for Tortuga or Barbados or some other secret cove along the coastline. Most of these ships didn't keep logs, and the few that did, many of those have been lost. But the few that we can know about are worth discussing. Now, last time we talked about a few relatively small names, so today I'd like to look at some of the more infamous buccaneers in the days after Panama. Alexander Exquemelin is the most obvious story to tell here, but unfortunately his story just really isn't all that interesting. Now, it totally should be. Had he been a better storyteller and less of a simple chronicler, it might have been something great. As... Many ships did. After Panama, his vessel sailed up the coast of Costa Rica, where they encountered hostile natives and enemy ships and a host of other trials and tribulations. Had Exquemelin been writing with more of the romance and the drama that we expect in shipboard adventures, well, this might have been a great one. Instead, though, the Buccaneers of America was... Well, it was as much of a a travel log as a memoir. It spends an entire page in his chapter discussing what happened after Panama, four entire paragraphs describing manatees. And I get it. The European people of the time were hungry for any word they could get of the exotic lands on the other side of the world. They all knew about boring old ships and sailing, but they'd never seen a manatee or a pineapple or any of the curiosities of the new world, and learning about that was half the fun of Exquemelin's account. However, for us reading it in the modern day, when we have the Discovery Channel and supermarkets that have all of these foods in them, well, it doesn't make for a tremendously compelling read. So today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to release a reading of an excerpt of the Buccaneers of America in tandem with today's episode those chapters in particular about Exquemelin's days after Panama. If you'd like to hear more about him and his adventure, you can check that out. On this episode, though, we're going to look at something that I find a lot more interesting. We'll be following the wickedest men left in the Caribbean, those few who turned full pirate after Panama, and we'll also take a look at the man who was tasked with bringing them to justice. This is episode number 35, assistance. In 
March of 1672, James, Duke of York, gave personal commands to the men in charge of the voyage that was preparing to sail for Jamaica. First, he gave that secret command to Thomas Lynch to arrest the current governor, Modi Ford, and replace him. But to the captains of the two vessels preparing to make the crossing, he gave less secret orders. They were to assist the new lieutenant governor in securing Port Royal and Jamaica for the king. They were to aid his efforts to enforce a peace, and then they were instructed to capture or kill any privateers that returned to a life of piracy. Now, the two ships that were going were the Assistance and the Welcome. The larger of the two, the frigate Assistance, was where Thomas Lynch would wind up bringing Governor Modiford to arrest him shortly after his arrival in the colony. Now, also on board during that arrest, to witness that arrest, were some of the most illustrious men in Jamaica. The captain of the Assistance was one John Hubbard. He was an honorable naval officer and a loyal Englishman. Also on board were the new governor, Lynch, Lieutenant John Wilgris, and Major William Beeston, among a number of other slightly less notable names. Now, of these four men, three of them had just arrived in Jamaica, that is, Governor Lynch, Captain Hubbard, and John Wilgris. But these four, including Beeston, represented a new age for Jamaica. They, all of them, believed in law and order. They believed in loyalty to the crown and commerce. Now, to that end, to bring about this new era in Jamaica, Lynch sent the other three men to Cartagena to extend an olive branch to the Spanish there. They were to deliver word of Jamaica's new policy on piracy. They were against it, and they were to exchange some English prisoners for some Spanish prisoners. Now, Wilgris, Beeston, and Hubbard strove to serve as examples for just what Jamaica was capable of being. They wanted to show with an example of their lives that Jamaica had changed from the days of a pirate haven into a respectable colony. Three days into the voyage, Captain Hubbard died. So, Lieutenant Wilgris took command of the voyage, and they continued on. When they were in Cartagena, they made arrangements for that prisoner exchange, and each side signed a declaration of the peace accord. Now, this was all, of course, part of the larger Treaty of Madrid, but the history of bad blood between Port Royal and places like Cartagena, or places like Santiago de Cuba, called for a more personal declaration. It also served to ensure all parties involved that the no-peace-beyond-the-line policy was no longer to be observed. This was to be the dawn of a new era of peace, companionship, and commerce between the two cities. But then, upon their return, Captain Wilgris was actually removed from his captaincy for, quote, wicked, drunken behavior, and he wound up being replaced by Beeston. So two of the men, the two captains that had come across on the voyage, were now no longer captains, and an old-time Jamaican, who was a loyal Englishman and nothing of a pirate, Beeston, was now in charge of the largest ship in the fleet. Before taking command of the assistance, Beeston had been one of the leaders of Jamaica's militia. He was a prominent plantation owner, he was a member of that planter class, and at times a politician. 
In his past, he'd been involved in other sensitive diplomatic missions, and even, at one point, elected as a member of the Jamaican Council for Port Royal. After Lynch's arrival, he sort of arose as a leading figure in the anti-Modi Ford faction on the island that supported the new Governor Lynch and wanted to do away with buccaneering and even privateering altogether. That's probably why he found himself aboard when the governor was arrested in the first place. He proved to be a loyal friend very early on. Now, one of the very first actions that Governor Lynch took was to release his proclamation of an end to privateering. Now, he didn't offer pardons. He didn't need to offer pardons because the voyage to Panama had been officially sanctioned, so none of the men on board were to be in any trouble. But he wanted to let it be known that any man caught buccaneering from here on out, whether they had a letter of mark or not, would be considered a pirate and an enemy of the state. Now, the governor offered all of these men a small parcel of land that he intended for sugar farming, the industry that they were trying to encourage on the island. But almost no one took him up on the offer. You see, what he was offering wasn't a large enough piece of land to grow a decent-sized crop far less than what was needed to buy slaves or get new equipment or even buy a little bit more land. Basically, what the new governor was offering was the opportunity of becoming a feudal peasant for the governor of Jamaica and working under the thumb of the East India Company. This wasn't tempting for all of those buccaneers who had spent the past few years with true freedom under their wings. Most of those men had been through all this song and dance before. You see, some set sail for Tortuga, mostly Frenchmen and Dutchmen, but a few set sail for the main, mostly English captains. You see, they headed for places like Beef Island, and they returned to the roots of buccaneering. Instead of piracy, they would poach cattle or boar from Spanish ranches and herd them back to their ships. Basically, they were 17th century cattle rustlers. But the majority of the men who headed for the main went for the more profitable, if perhaps a little bit harder, work of cutting logwood. That is, cutting down trees that were used for the production of dye. It earned a pretty penny back in Port Royal. Now this wasn't piracy. It wasn't crime at sea but it was of dubious legality. The Spanish claimed the whole mainland under their dominion, and they considered taking anything from them theft and called it piracy. Now, it definitely was theft, but the merchants back in Port Royal and even the officials in Jamaica and as far away as Whitehall, well, they turned a blind eye to this. You see, Logwood was selling for a lot of money, and on any voyage that these buccaneers took, they had to cut in the governor and the king for a small percentage of it. Plus, the Spanish main was full of places that were virtually empty that one could use to chop logwood. So the English authorities weren't willing to arrest anybody for cutting a little bit of logwood, but when the Spanish Coast Guard would catch a ship full of former buccaneers with holds full of logwood just a few miles off the coast, well, they arrested them and occasionally executed them for piracy. Now, this happened more than a few times in the months after Panama, and every time it happened, it strained the newfound peace between England and Spain. It even made diplomatic ripples back in London. 
You see, the Spanish Coast Guard had really upped their game after Panama. Patrols all across the New World were frequent, and ever since Lynch had disavowed any man caught pirating, they were more likely to just kill the people they captured and steal their ships rather than put the buccaneers in chains. In addition to that, they'd begun employing privateers of their own. Now, the first hints of that actually came before Panama, when the governor employed a privateer to attack Jamaica. But now, they had dozens of ships out hunting for any English ship they could claim was up to some sort of piracy. And remember, the Spanish definition of piracy was a little bit loose. In Buccaneers of the Caribbean, John Latimer writes, quote, there were 900 men working on Beef Island and Triste in the Bay of Campeche, a great many of them former buccaneers. The Spanish, however, were outraged, and they sought to capture any English ships they could. They sent their own privateers, including Mateo Guarín, Juan Corso, Arturo Brea, Francisco Ugaz, Manuel Antonio Maldonado, and the Sagonanzos brothers, who together would account for at least 150 pirate craft between 1672 and the end of 1675. End quote. Still, despite the high mortality rate for men caught hauling beef or logwood, they were far less likely to be executed than those who were actively engaging piracy by sacking Spanish ships or even still attacking Spanish cities. Sometimes these men would even go so far as to brazenly attack the Spanish Coast Guard in a probably misguided hunt for retribution. And there were some diehards out there that, no matter what they did, just couldn't quit the life of piracy. Even if they'd wanted to turn to a life of peaceful manual labor, and they didn't, their past crimes and their reputations were too notorious for them to be accepted into regular civilization again. However, even if Governor Lynch were willing to ignore the poaching and all the logwood cutting, he couldn't afford to ignore the pirates out there. So, he ordered Captain Beeston out in the assistance, with the welcome at his side, to announce his pardon, and to generally make it clear that piracy was no longer acceptable in the Caribbean. But there were three men in particular that had to be brought to justice. All three were famous. They were feared men. They were dangerous men. They're among that group that I was just speaking of that were too dangerous to be allowed back into civilization. Moreover, they were part of the old guard. They were truly hardened captains that refused to join into this new era that Lynch was trying to build. They were the last remaining members of the real Brethren of the Coast, and to keep the peace and to establish this new order, well, these men had to be eradicated. They'd sailed on Panama under Morgan, as had nearly every buccaneer in the Caribbean, but that was the least of their crimes. All three were one-time cohorts of Francois Lalonnais. They'd sailed under him on some of his most notorious voyages and been complicit in some of his worst atrocities. Now, the three men had set out on their own, splitting away from Lolonais in 1668. That was actually the year that Lolonais returned to Tortuga from a voyage with an 80-ton, 12-gun brigantine in tow. Now, he intended to give that ship to the best buccaneer he knew, a man who was probably the longest roving member of the Brethren of the Coast, and who was at the time probably the most famous. He gave the ship to Roque 
Brasiliano, alias Garrett Garrettzoon, alias Rock the Brazilian. Now, we've talked about the Brazilian before on this show. He's been on more than a few of the voyages we've discussed. Now, he started off taking fishing ships and small merchantmen off the coast of Cuba. Real small-time stuff, but he joined up with Francois Lolonet for a couple of his very early voyages. But then he really first enters the picture of history when he shipped out under Admiral Christopher Mings. Do you remember him? He was the admiral of the Jamaica station once upon a time, and he was the guy that planned an attack on Campeche, on the gulf coast of the Yucatan. Well, Roque Braziliano was on board the 14-gun Griffin under uh, Captain Swart. The Griffin was supposed to be the vice flagship on that voyage, but during a storm it got separated from the fleet, so Swart and Roque the Braziliano missed the attack on Campeche and all of the rewards that came with it. So they decided to roam the coast for a while and look for some easy prey. Now this may come as a surprise, but it turns out that the best time to skulk about looking for easy prizes isn't immediately after a major attack on a prominent city. The Spanish were out in force, and they attacked the crew of the Griffin, killing 28 men. So the Griffin limped along for a few months. They were looking for food and fresh water, and hopefully a safe place to careen the ship. But it wound up being Roque Braziliano that captured a ship, Alceviana. Now, she was a smaller craft, but she was hauling gold and silver bound for Cuba. It was a rich prize, and more importantly, to the crew, it was seaworthy. It was able to carry the crew back to Jamaica and filled their pockets with enough money to spend some months in leisure. So, naturally, due to this windfall, the crew voted Braziliano captain of the new ship, and they joined him on his next voyage. He took part in the 1665 raid on St. Eustatius under Colonel Edward Morgan. Now, that was the attack on the Dutch during the Second Anglo-Dutch War that killed the illustrious Edward Morgan. Edward was the old English Civil War hero that came to Jamaica to serve as admiral after Mings and Mansvelt, and he was also Henry Morgan's uncle. Now, he never saw his nephew, who was busy off making a name for himself in Grenada. But the fleet fell apart on that raid and went their separate ways after the colonel died. After returning to Port Royal, Braziliano testified to the Admiralty Court, quote, Garrett Garretson, alias Rocky, deposed to having been chased by Spanish men of war, one of which was the Griffin, which formerly belonged to His Majesty and was commanded by Captain Swart, end quote. This was a little twist of fate, but in the end, Brasiliano had a little stint in the clink. But finally, in 1668, he found himself in command of a new ship, that gift from Francois Lolonais. Now, a number of his old crew brought shares in his ship, and they joined up with him. Now, the two most prominent, the two who concern us here, are his first mate, Gel de la Ca and Jan Erasmus Reining. These were old-time rovers who'd sailed with Roque in the past, but most recently they'd sailed under Lolonet. All three of these men, the Brazilian, Laca, and Raining, were rovers well before Henry Morgan began roving. These were some of the oldest rovers active in the Caribbean at the time, and they chose their next venture well. Rather than sail with Lolonet on the voyage that would wind up costing him and his men their lives, they decided to sail under Captain Henry Morgan on his attack on Portobello. Now, we've covered all of these attacks already. Campeche, Grenada, St. Eustatius, Portobello. 
If they don't ring a bell, you should probably go back and give those episodes a listen. But during the raid on Portobello, Roque Brasiliano captured another brigantine, which he took command of. He gave his old ship to his mate, Shell Laca, and Jan Raining stayed on the other ship, and each of those men moved up a step, Shell Laca's captain and Raining as his first mate. Then in 1669, these two ships set sail from Port Royal once again, this time alongside Captain Joseph Bradley on his own brigantine, the Mayflower. These three ships and their commanders, Bradley, Gerritsoon, Laca, and then Raining, would prove to be something of a dream team in Caribbean piracy. A buccaneering supergroup, if you will. They sailed to the Gulf of Mexico, which was an old haunt for all of the Brethren of the Coast, and they set up shop in the Laguna de Terminos. That was some miles south of Campeche, but that was the city it was closest to. It made for a good base of operations for a few reasons. First, Campeche was the closest settlement, but there weren't any terribly close by. There was a supply of fresh water, there were two rivers that entered the bay, there was good fishing there, and it was a relatively secluded location. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So these ships roved out of the Laguna and preyed on the smaller merchantmen that were on their way to Campeche. Eventually, they were lucky enough to take a ship carrying corn flour, which gave the men the opportunity to return to the Laguna and relax a bit. They spent their time eating bread and careening their ships, which they then outfitted for battle. The men hunted and fished and enjoyed themselves. At one point, though, there was something of a falling out between Raining and Garretsoon that led Captain Laca to choose to stay behind at the lagoon and chop logwood. The area around the laguna was rich with the stuff, and while it may not have been the most lucrative possibility, well, as we'll soon see, it turned out to be the smart move. Bradley and Roque Brasiliano made for Campeche, and they decided to try their hand at blockading the city's harbor. Now, Bradley anchored a bit farther out to guard the rear and be able to catch the wind should any ships slide by. Brasiliano took position closer to the city to threaten the harbor directly. Now, maybe things would have gone differently had Lacaw come along as well. Maybe that third ship would have made the difference, but in the end it doesn't really sound like it. Campeche outfitted three ships for battle and sent them to engage Roque Brasiliano's vessel, he wound up shipwrecked off the coast and was forced to make his way to land. 
those three Spanish ships, rather than pursuing Brasiliano ashore, they decided to go after Bradley's ship, which may have saved Brasiliano's life. And it also worked out well for Bradley because he was able to give them the slip and he headed back to the Laguna de Terminos. Now, Laca had, at this point, a pretty good haul in his hold by now, so upon learning that the Brazilian was trapped on land, he set sail for the wreck to rescue him. After slipping past the three ships from Campeche, he rescued the crew and transferred them over to Bradley's ship, and everybody left made their way back to Jamaica. Now, when they were in Jamaica, things had changed a bit. They had time to sell their haul, and almost immediately they picked up letters of mark from the governor. You see, the Spanish had attacked Jamaica while they'd been gone, and Admiral Morgan was away marshalling a fleet. Now Bradley, who was a confidant of Morgan's, was expected. Morgan intended to give him a command, but it was known that Bradley was in cahoots with these other illustrious buccaneer captains who were expected to go with him. Now, Roque Brasiliano, before leaving, procured a new ship, and the three vessels, Brasilianos, Bradleys, and Lacaz, all headed off to join the Armada amassing off Hispaniola. Now, they took part in the capture of La Providencia, and then Morgan ordered those three ships to go attack San Lorenzo Castle at the mouth of the Rio Chagres. Now, I detailed that battle in Dictator of the West Indies. If you haven't listened to it, I suggest you do so now. In fact, Go back and listen to that episode, and then the few following it as well. You should really be caught up, and I don't want to give any of this stuff away without the drama it deserves. Alright, now that they're gone, Captain Bradley dies. And it's possible, actually, that the Brazilian dies as well. He's assumed by most historians to have marched on Panama. And there is a mention of a Brazilian leading a force, but it's unclear if that's a rogue Brasiliano. But despite the death of Bradley, they take the castle at San Lorenzo and they kill all the Spaniards. It's pretty brutal and it's also pretty heroic and it's awesome. Then, Raining and Laca march on Panama with Henry Morgan. That's also pretty brutal and epic and awesome. But like almost everyone at Panama, Laca and Raining were disappointed in their halls. They were embittered after the battle and the occupation of Panama. Their pay had been laughable for what they'd all gone through, and they felt that Morgan and his closest cronies had cheated them. Now, I'd like you to think back to when you were a kid. Did you ever come home from school to find a strange car in the driveway? Nothing out of the ordinary, just a car you didn't recognize. Likely, you wondered who that might be. Now imagine, instead, that that were a police car parked outside your house. You might feel alarmed or worried, or, if you were anything like me, you might wonder exactly what the cops had you on. Now picture that emotion, the cops parked outside your house. But then, imagine that instead of a police cruiser, you find two massive warships parked in your driveway. And then, when you get inside, you discover that your mother has been arrested for treason, and you now have a new, much less lenient mother in her place. Your father, on the other hand, who you're pretty sure stole all your allowance and spent it on booze, is now hiding upstairs pretending to be sick and he won't come out. When you finally talk to your brothers and sisters, you come to find out that you're like, super grounded. No more fun, ever. In fact, they're going to make you work in the garden all day, every day, until you die. What would you do? 
Don't you think maybe you might just run away? Well, that's exactly what Jan Erasmus Reining and Gel Lacotte did upon returning to Port Royal. Everything had changed after Panama. Modiford was gone. Morgan was in hiding, and Port Royal wasn't friendly to their sort anymore. So they had a few drinks, had a few laughs, heard the news, said goodbye to their favorite lady love, and sailed right out of Port Royal. And they weren't alone. Dozens of other buccaneer vessels left Jamaica and headed north. They amassed mostly off the south shore of Cuba, where they could poach cattle and boar and keep an eye out for stray merchant ships. Naturally, in the anti-pirate climate after Panama, this upset the Spanish, and it made for... Well, it made for tricky territory. You see, there was a war on back in Europe, and it was making itself more and more known in the Caribbean. England and France were allied against Holland. Holland was... Well, not exactly allied, but they were supported by Spain. It was kind of an enemy-of-my-enemy situation. Now, Reining and Laca, they were Dutch, and currently they were raiding their almost allies, the Spanish off the coast of Cuba. But they were known to sail out of Port Royal and cavort with English pirates. So, in the end, even though most of the actually English pirates had gone off to cut logwood, Reining and Laca became Governor Lynch's problem. So he had to respond. And to do so, he sent those two ships that were in the harbor at Port Royal, the Assistance and the Welcome, under Major William Beeston, out to deal with the pirates. He was ordered to disperse, to capture, or to kill any rovers he could find, but he had special orders to search out Laca and Reining. They were to be his priority. Now, he did knock some heads around there in the south of Cuba, but he got the cold shoulder from the governor at Santiago. He was refused entry into the port, or even to resupply any victuals, despite bringing a Spanish ship back to the Spanish at Cuba that the buccaneers had taken. This was, of course, a symptom of the fact that England and Spain were kind of at each other's throats, despite officially being in a peace. Now, had the governor at Santiago been more accommodating, Beeston might have had better luck, but instead he was forced to return home, and that gave Reining and Laca the opportunity to slip away. So they headed west for the Gulf of Mexico and their old stomping grounds off the Yucatan. They took a Coast Guard vessel almost immediately, and Reining took command of that ship. However, once he resupplied, Major Beeston wasn't far behind the pair. He caught up pretty quickly, and he chased them up and down the coast, but it was tough going. The two buccaneers knew this territory well. They knew all the hidden coves and the inlets, and moreover, their smaller sailing vessels had shallower drafts than the large brigantines, and, well, they could hide where the English ships just couldn't follow. In the end, though, Beeston managed to push the two vessels to Campeche. He had the corsairs cornered there. But once again, diplomacy got in the way. The two Dutch captains were actually able to claim sanctuary in the Spanish city. They were, after all, allies of a sort. And the Spanish refused entry to the English, who were, after all, enemies of a sort. So Beeston, really once again, due to the Spanish being unwilling to cooperate, had to relent. And he decided to hunt easier prey. It was then, after turning away from the city, that he captured the Charity, a known pirate vessel captained by Francis Witherborn. 
He transported them back to Port Royal, where Witherborn was tried and found guilty of piracy and, quote, great violence against the Spaniards. Witherborn was placed in shackles on board the Welcome to await transport back to England, which, as it would turn out, would be in the company of a much more illustrious pirate. But what about Laca and Raining? They were buccaneers, and they were holed up in Campeche, a city that they personally had terrorized more than a few times. Well, historical accounts differ here. Some say that they were imprisoned and tortured. Others that they confessed their crimes and promptly converted to Catholicism and then, well, I suppose, confessed their sins. What we do know is that they were next heard of some months later. They were roving once again, but this time they were roving under a Spanish flag. They used the Laguna de Terminos as a base once again. This time, though, they waited for the Buccaneer crews or the Logwood expeditions, and they arrested them in the name of the Queen of Spain. And they were successful. They knew all the habits and all the haunts of their former brothers, and they used that to their advantage. They took maybe 20 ships in a few months, most with virtually no struggle. They weren't, though, the most successful. The most successful Spanish privateer of the era wasn't Spanish either. His name was Philip Fitzgerald, and he was an Irish buccaneer of really no particular note until he signed up with Spain. He went by the Spanish name Philippe Geraldino, and in his time serving, he took maybe as many as 40 ships. That relationship, though, kind of makes sense. He was Irish, and he was Catholic, and, well, Spain had a long relationship with Ireland, all the way back to Queen Elizabeth. During this time, when so many Dutch, French, and Irish buccaneers were signing up to work with the Spanish, well, Lynch became concerned, so he wrote back to Lord Arlington of all of the wrongs done to English ships by the Spanish, and by, in particular, their privateers. He said that, they had done more damage to English shipping than the English had done to the Spanish in their entire time, privateering. Now, that probably wasn't true. The Spanish didn't burn down a city the size of Panama, but the Spanish weren't too picky about who they chose to arrest. Regardless, Whitehall wasn't going to do anything about it. You see, mostly, the Spanish focused on logwood cutters, not proper pirates. And this was a weird legal gray area that made any sort of retribution totally unlikely. This whole time was strange for the Buccaneers. After Panama, everything changed. You might wonder why Raining and Laca didn't go to Tortuga and get French commissions. Well, many privateers did, but they weren't Dutch. They were English, or mostly French. And those commissions were largely to attack the Dutch. They were attacking old allies, old members of the Brethren. That third Anglo-Dutch war and the changing of the guard back in Port Royal, well, it tore the Brethren of the Coast in half. Their national allegiances, or really more precisely, the allegiance to who was paying them, got in the way. They continued privateering, but at this point it was true privateering. This was wartime raiding in service of their rulers for the promise of whatever they could squeeze out of their official enemies. And it wasn't just the English and the French that were doing this. The Spanish had their own armada of privateers, and Raining and Lacaw would go on to get Dutch commissions. 
There's actually an excellent tale of Raining attacking a French settlement and taking the castle only to wind up besieged by a French fleet and nearly starved to death. Finally, the French took the castle back and imprisoned the Dutch privateers. But then, in what was really a pretty brilliant move, Raining produced a poison that he had hidden away before the French took the castle back, poisoned the guards, and made good his escape. But all of that... Well, at this point, that's really a soldier's story. He was doing patriotic deeds in the service of his nation, and pirates... Pirates are without nations. They are enemies of all mankind, exiled from civilization. And here, well here, with the ashes of Panama gone cold, and the last of the old guard, the last of the brethren either dead or captured or actively working for Spain, well right here we see the end of the first great pirate era. The 1660s saw an explosion in privateering, supported by nations that simply couldn't afford to field navies in the West Indies. That privateering was all based on the old tradition of buccaneering, and it turned them into almost outright pirates. You see, the non-Spanish settlements in the West were still young. They were, most of them, less than a decade old, and they were constantly being conquered and recaptured and then taken again. But there is one last effect that the Third Anglo-Dutch War had on the end of the Brethren and the end of that first great era of Caribbean piracy. During the war, a little bit after the events of today's episode, when a company of privateers was captured by the enemies, instead of being imprisoned, they were put to work on sugar plantations. Now, these plantations had slaves, of course, but when a crew was set to farming, well, it was like all of a sudden you had 50 or 100 or even 500 slaves, all of them free. You didn't have to pay for them. You just captured them. Well, suddenly they were pumped into the workforce and they gave a huge boost to production in the economy there. And this, to the powers that be, was a shocking wake-up call. This game of musical chairs, this game of constant wars and shifting alliances, well... It wasn't really doing anyone any good. It was costing everybody a lot of money. And all of these governors and old powers learned really an ancient lesson. War is expensive, and peace is profitable. Now, all throughout the 1660s, there are other stories of buccaneers to be told. Men like Pierre Le Picard, at least the first one, and Jan Berzun Reuter, Thomas Salter, Robert Searle. There are a host of others most of whom will never even know their names, but most of those people are more privateer than pirate. I wanted to tell the stories of those who straddled that line and sometimes managed to jump right over it. Now, there will be another burst of piracy in the Caribbean in about ten years or so, and we're definitely going to cover those pirates. We'll see Henry Morgan again, although... By then, he'll be old and fat and powerful, and spending his days sharing rum and war stories with sailors down at the old Port Royal Taverns. More and more, though, our journey is going to take us east, to the Indian Ocean and Madagascar, to Libertalia and the Mughal Empire. We're going to be looking at pirates like Captain Kidd and Henry Avery, and we're going to begin that journey by following Bartholomew Sharp, Basil Ringrose, and William Dampier on their Pacific adventure. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody for your support, both on Patreon and those who have donated to the show, as well as those who have left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whoever it is you happen to listen to the show. Everybody who gives us a shout-out on Twitter or mentions us to their friends in real life, well, that really helps get the show noticed. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out already, go and do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Most importantly, and as always... Thank you for listening.